Support for this podcast has been provided by Alliance Bernstein Investment Management and Research, making money meaningful. I can say one thing, you know, I, I really think that the idea of the kibbutz is paradise. We were looking for angels, we couldn't find them. Only human beings. So we have human beings on the kibbutz, and I think that for some of us, the kibbutz is moving us a little bit toward being an angel. But most of the people are no angels. This is Startup Stories from the Startup Nation. My name is Yigal Marcus. Thank you for joining us. In this podcast, we'll meet the entrepreneurs who have personified the economic miracle known as the Startup Nation, the State of Israel. We'll learn about the culture which helped incubate them and their ideas. We'll learn of their successes and, of course, their failures. And we'll explore why it is that Israel develops some of the leading innovators of our time. This is part two of my interview with Nati Barak of Netafim, the leading drip irrigation company in Israel, which today employs over 4,000 people and operates in 110 countries. You had mentioned earlier you were appointed the head of the South African, uh, at one point, the South African region um, for that. Can you tell us a little bit about that? You know, again, in the kibbutz, it's, it's very strange. When I decided that I want to join as a film, I wanted to be the bottom level salesman. We, don't, we didn't call it salesman. Never. You know, salesman has some kind of a negative connotation, especially to someone from the kibbutz. So I was ish shirut sadeh, field service person. I was serving my fellow farmers. And this is what I wanted to do. I wanted to get a small pickup truck and drive to the field and talk to farmers and convince them to use drip irrigation. And this was in the beginning of 1975. And the CEO of Netafim at that time, again, he was not called CEO, he was called Merakez HaMifal, even not manager, but Merakez is like the coordinator. Yeah, the organizer. The organizer. So that to make, to make it sure that he is not on top of everything, he's one of the equals. So I wanted to be a field service person, a salesman. And the CEO of that time came to me and said, no, we want you to be, again, today you'll call it the CFO. At that time it was the gizbar, the treasurer. Treasure, right. And I said, no, I want to be in the field. And he said, no, we want you to be uh, the treasurer for two years and then we'll let you do whatever you want. So it took four years because apparently they enjoyed what I did. And I'll, I'll be honest with you, I also enjoyed it. Because in a way, I, I turned it into something like was, I was like a key account manager, just in Israel. But I was dealing with the big organizations, that uh, buying organizations and so on. And of course, with the banks and so on. And, uh, and only four years later, I went and I became a salesman and my territory was the southern part of Israel. And I always say that my first export territory was Gaza, 
Gaza at that time was part of Israel, and I used to go there alone. It was no problem. We had a local dealer. I, I don't speak Arabic, so I spoke English with him. Beautiful seafood restaurants on the beach next to the casino. I loved going, and I loved the farmers of Gaza. Good farmers, good people. And I, I, one day, uh, I always say drip, our dripper lines will be the bridge to peace. There's no... Well, there's no question economic the, the, development, real economic development... Uh, is critical to, to peace. So, and then... Uh, Sinai? Sinai? Did you... Did you and, and, and Sinai. I had, did. The, wow. We had some that's a big, Jewish... That's a big, big, ter- big yeah, territory. Yeah, but, but I, I worked with some Jewish settlements on Sinai along the Red Sea, and of course the Arava Desert and the Negev Mountains and so on. And then they said, okay, but to make life more interesting for you, you'll also be responsible for the Greek market. So my first steps in the global market were in Greece, very similar to to Israel, Mediterranean climate and crops and so on, and great people. Farmers are always the greatest. And then a few changes, and uh, we decided to start the first subsidiary in the United States, and I went to California. And, and at that time, we already had competition. And, and, and two guys with funny names, Nati. So you can say Nadi. <laughs> That's e- not a good name for a development person. And Ichi. Ichi. <laughs> Jeez. And, and, and someone from the competition came to us and said, listen, you have this funny accent. You have funny names. You don't play golf with us. You don't go fishing with us. You don't drink with us. Do yourself and your kibbutz a favor and go back home because you'll fall on your face. And we said, yes, but we know one thing, which is drip irrigation. We are the source for drip irrigation. And today, Nerafim USA is our largest subsidiary based in Fresno, and, and, and we are moving from the traditional almonds and grapes from Napa Valley and the Central Valley in California. We are more and more in the Midwest growing corn and soybeans and really helping farmers all over the United States to grow more with less. Why would anybody not use drip irrigation? <clears throat> there are several reasons. Number one, it takes an investment. And uh, in Israel, in India, in Turkey, in some instances, the the, the government realizes that some help is needed to, to start it, to introduce it to farmers. Uh, in California... Farmers have no pain. Again, I remember talking to farmers in California and telling them, you know, this is saving water and so on. I said, why do I need to save water? I have as much water as I want, whenever I want it, wherever I want it, and it's free. So this was 35 years ago. We had a farmer that said, you know, this nonsense is not going to continue forever and someone is going to... Uh, regulate water 
And I want to be prepared, so I would like to learn about drip irrigation now. And so in California, farmers started with drip irrigation, realized that it's an excellent management tool, that it increases yield and increases income. So drip irrigation was adopted nicely in California. It also reduces consumption of water, I imagine. Of course, but now it is a concern. 30 years ago, it was not a concern. So it takes an initial investment. And it is a, a, a shift in the mind and in the practice and so on. So we are helping. I mean, uh, we spoke about the technology, about the drippers and the dripper lines. And, and we have an excellent technology. But the agronomic know-how is also very essential to our success. The fact that it's not only the hardware, but also the software that we are providing to the farmers. So this is the second uh, base for our success. The third one is our global spread. The fact that we are a global company and we are all over the world. And, and our manufacturing technology is also a state of the art. It's a leading technology and we have a very efficient, accurate uh, manufacturing uh, process. What is your fastest growing market right now? The fastest growing is China because we, we entered China relatively late. India is growing very fast. And then there are, you know, sometimes you have uh, uh, some crisis in the Far East, but the Latin America compensates for it. Sometimes it's not very good in, in, in Africa, but then you have Europe and so on. So again, the fact that we are a global company and we have a good uh, foothold in many countries helps us. I, I didn't give you an answer on, on South Africa. And then in, in, I think it was in the 90s, early 90s, we had a local representative in South Africa and uh, it was a good market, but the, 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 it was not a very good management, and we felt that the company uh, is not going to make it, and we decided at the beginning we tried to work with them, and uh, we had many legal issues and so on, and then we decided to start uh, a subsidiary in South Africa, and I was appointed to be responsible for that. At the beginning, uh, I was traveling a lot back and forth. And then I went there for about four months to start everything, to establish the company and to appoint a, managing a local managing director to the company. And I found uh, in the Afrikaners, in the African farmers of that time, they, again, they were excellent farmers, and they were good people. And uh, I, I had, you know, I was traveling in the remote area there, and I asked, and I asked the farmer, uh, okay, can you help me to find a hotel? And he said, no way, you are going to stay at my home. 
And so I find myself, uh, he took uh, his five-year-old daughter out of his bed and put me in, in of her bed and put me there. And then in the morning she came and she wanted me to tell her stories. So, uh, and, and I still have some very good friends among farmers and irrigation dealers and our people in, in South Africa. One of the questions that I had <clears throat> was around the politics. Natafim is an Israeli company, and there are a lot of countries out there, I imagine, who really need what you provide, which is you know, life-saving um, technology to help increase produce and preserve water. And yet, you have the, the politics of you're an Israeli company, and specifically in South Africa today, which is um, right now somewhat hostile to Israel. Um, how have you guys been able to navigate that? Being an Israeli company and yet helping countries that may not like us very much. People know the value of the uh, Israeli technology as far as water and irrigation is concerned. And Nedafim is being the pioneer of drip irrigation we are considered the leader in, in this field, and which has its commitments, obligations, being a leader, but it has also some advantages. And people are looking for our technology. And again, there are the right were to say is they're looking for our solution, our solutions, because they have the challenges and we have the solutions and they know it. So of course it's much easier when it is in California and the governor of California signs an MOU with our prime minister and this is based on cybersecurity, agriculture and water. Easy. It's a little bit more complicated when it is in country where the uh, politic arena is not very favorable. We, we, we are not in politics. We are in helping farmers to grow more with less. This is what we do. So there was a great project that was done in Gaza under the Hamas, financed by USAID, carried by a, a subcontractor of USAID from the uh, Washington metropolitan area, an NGO, uh, a global NGO involved helping for, uh, small farmers, providing each small farmer with a small greenhouse and an irrigation, an Atafim irrigation system to help him grow more food with less water. In the Saudi Peninsula, you can find our drippers. Uh, we have muted the drippers so they do not sing the Israeli anthem. <laughs> and, and we don't raise the Israeli flag, though. But people 
know, and, and farmers can talk. It could have been much better. I'm always dreaming about drip irrigation and the Nile Valley in Egypt. Drip irrigation with our technology and know-how and our solutions can do marvelous things for the economy of Egypt and feeding the Egyptian population. So we are working in Egypt, but not in the scale that it should have been. Let us talk. Let, let farmers talk and, and, and keep the, the politicians behind. Things will be much better. But even this sentence is, uh, is wrong. I mean, we, we shouldn't talk about politics. We should talk about farmers globally growing more with less. Looking back at, you know, more than 40 years almost, in the, actually more than 40 years, 45 years uh, in this company from its um, infant stage, from its birth, really, what are the biggest challenges that you faced over, over, the, over the time? What were the biggest barriers that you had to overcome in order to really allow the company to grow globally and become as, as important as it has become so far? I would say I say it in a positive way, increasing awareness to the advantages of drip irrigation. A marketing well, issue, really. It's really a marketing issue. It's a marketing issue, but, but on, on a, a macro uh, level, because I think that I'm often being asked, who is your competition? And I have the same answer. Our number one competition is ignorance. Ignorance among decision makers. Not being aware to the advantages of drip irrigation. I think this is the challenge of Netafim. And me personally, as chief sustainability officer, this is what I've been doing for the last 10 years, talking to decision makers about the advantages of drip irrigation. And when I talk about the advantages, again, it's, it's not only the return on investment, which is probably the most important thing. There's no question about it. But the social aspect, the environmental aspects, and, and, uh, and, and so on. By the way, the second competitor is flood irrigation. And flood irrigation is winning. So we have to convince farmers, so going from top, from decision makers, to the bottom, to the farmer in the field, we have to convince farmers that moving from flood to drip irrigation will be better for them. And this is what we are busy doing on all levels. And, and that actually explains all the work that you do um, so we have the chairman of the technical committee for the water reuse of the International Organization for Standardization. You're, you work on a couple of uh, committees in the United Nations. Want to talk about that a little bit? You know, I, when I took this uh, assignment, sustainability for Netafim, like, like many things in life, I mean, someone in, in a course of uh, business administration and management told me that to succeed in business, 
you need mainly luck. To have luck in business, you need to work very hard. So, you know, coincidence, I met someone from one of the platforms of the United Nations, the Global Compact, and I was talking about the good things that we are doing. And he said, you know, funny enough, we are just establishing now a very interesting platform. It's called the CEO of the Mandate. He gave me the phone number of the guy who is heading this for the United Nations, and I called him, and I went to the first meeting at the United Nations headquarters in New York. And I was so excited. I mean, for us, the United Nations, first of all, many of the uh, platforms of the United Nations in Israel don't have a very positive uh, uh, image. But I went and I saw people dealing with actual things concerning water and awareness to water. And I realized that this is an excellent platform for us. And uh, I perhaps spoke too much on this first meeting, so they asked me to be on the steering committee from day one, and I was on the steering committee. And, and, and I saw that the people, that's where I learned that big corporations are more and more getting aware of how they treat uh, the environment in general and water in particular. And there's the water footprint of, of uh, uh, products, and I always give the example of blue jeans. One pair of jeans is consuming 4,100 liters of water, 4.1 metric tons of water for one pair of jeans. 40% in laundry, in washing the jeans. And Levi's came with that idea. They say, don't wash your jeans so often. Put it in the deep freezer for 24 hours. It will kill all the germs. And then you can wear it again. And I want to go to Levi's. I didn't know that. You didn't know that. <laughs> so they got to tell me these things. You got a label. Look yeah. up a, a water footprint blue jeans. One, one kilo of beef consumes 15,000 kilos of water, 15,000 liters of water, which equals 50,000 kilos of water for one kilo of beef. Most of it growing corn to f or alfalfa to feed the beef. Wow. So I want to go to Levi's and say, buy your cotton only from farmers who use drip irrigation, which will save 50% of the water. So those are the platforms, the United Nations and so on. And then I got this amazing phone call in Swedish accent telling me this was in 2013. Mr. Barak, we are very happy to inform you that this year you are going to receive the prize. So I was sure that I'm getting the Nobel Prize. So it wasn't the Nobel Prize. It was the Stockholm Industry Water award and I had to go to the king and queen of Sweden and wear a tuxedo which by the way we don't have on the kibbutz or in so Israel I, for that sake <laughs> in Israel you may get it now but uh, we have so many Nobel laureates so uh, I guess that I could borrow one 
and, and, and I got this very prestigious. A year before us, it was uh, uh, PepsiCo, and a year before that, it was Nestle, and then Etafim. So this is, I, I, I'm using it, we are using it to increase awareness to our good work. A couple of last questions, because I know that you're, you've been great. Um, you've been with the company for 45 years. You've had a, an amazing career, and yet you come to work every day. What motivates you? You know, I love what I'm doing. I love what I'm doing. I'm, I'm, I'm doing it with a lot of emotion, with a lot of passion. So I'm enjoying it. I, 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 again, you know, I can say that I'm very fortunate that I'm doing it for the public good, for the poor people in sub-Saharan Africa. I could say all that, and, 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 and perhaps it's true. But down, you know, in the bottom of my heart, I, I think that I'm very fortunate. I, I happen to love what I'm doing. You know, I, this you don't have to put, but there's this movie, Forrest Gump. I know it well. Okay. Great, great movie. So, you know, I happen to be at the right place. You know, I joined the kibbutz in 64, and there was this general assembly meeting establishing Netafim. I, they decided to start the subsidiary in the United States, and I was there. I was a good salesman, I guess. I spoke uh, uh, broken English with a terrible accent, and, and I was sent uh, to California. And, and, and I was in California, and I can tell you, again, we were talking about the uh, coincidence. I planned my first study tour of the drip irrigation market in the United States. And I, at that time, no faxes, telephone was very expensive and so on. So it was like December and January, and I was planning a trip in April, May, sending letters to people and setting appointments and so on. And then in one of the discussions, someone told me there's a very large agricultural show in Tulare in California. And you must be there. So I went to the General Assembly of the Kibbutz because they are the ones that approved. And, and I said, I want to go there. And said, fine, you know, instead of going in April, go in January. I said, no way, you know, I have all those appointments. I must go in April and in January. So they said, okay. And I met a guy from an Israeli company from Motorola and he told me there's a guy from McCarthy Farms. He is looking for pressure-compensated drippers. And I went to meet him, and we signed through a dealer the largest sale that we did in, in that year. So this was coincidence. So coincidence and luck. But if we didn't have that specific, excellent product that Rafi Meudar developed and our people in manufacturing brought to perfection... I wouldn't have received this, uh, this order. The, uh, the founder of, of my company, uh, Mr. Bernstein, said, life, you need to have mazal, uh, luck. Um, the first letter, mem, makom, 
the right place, Zain, Zman, at the right time, and Lamid, La'asot, to do, that you have to grab the opportunity by the horns and, and execute to the best of your Tell ability. Tell him that I agree with him, how do you say, full-heartedly. He passed away in 1999, but I'll tell his wife. Tell his wife. <laughs> tell his wife. I mean, it's so, so true. I'm telling you, it's a combination of mazal and all those hard work, which leads to the place and to the labor and to everything. Israel, what is it about Israel in your mind that creates great startups like Netafim? It's, it's hard to call Netafim a startup, 45 years old, but... The impact it's had on the world is probably greater than you know almost all in my opinion almost all startups that that Israel has produced so far you know it's a combination I think first of all you have to remember that Israel is a very young nation so specifically for our field agriculture and irrigation and precision agriculture and so on farmers came here without the the heavy load of traditional farming. So this may be, and, and, and again, because of the ideology and, and you had bright people, many times with high education, that wanted to become farmers, so it is an ideology. There's the Israeli, you call it chutzpah, we say chutzpah. We don't take no for an answer. If you close the door, we will find the detour to get there, the window or the roof. Uh, I think we are not afraid to fail. So if we fail, we go backwards, we check what went wrong, and we find another way. Uh, This is not my quote, but the Jewish mother that wants us to succeed, to do something. Look at your cousin. He's already there. And so I have also to prove myself to my Jewish mother. <laughs> but uh, this I'm quoting someone else. Uh, I, I really think that this... Uh, and, and then, you know, I was talking, and this is a relatively recent thing, uh, The fact the military service in Israel has one very bad aspect, which is fighting wars, and I've lost many of my friends in wars. And it has many positive things. One of them is taking very young people and making them responsible for things. Sometimes for very expensive stuff, whether it's Iron Dome or an F-35 or a battery of I don't know what. And, and of course, those very special units of the intelligence the, where you take bright kids and you give them whatever they need to develop whatever is needed. So you take all those bricks and you put them together together And I think that this is the, the startup nation, Israel. I want to ask you a question about the role of the kibbutz today versus 
50 years ago. There's no doubt that the kibbutz was so important in the establishment of the state of Israel. And today, Israel is a thriving economy. I'm wondering your perspective on the role of the kibbutz today. It's not the same. It's a complicated question. I am still very proud of being a a kibbutz member. Very proud. Uh, But if you ask our CEO, he'll say, man, stupid guys, this kibbutz idea. I mean, a, a, a great thinker said once that the kibbutz is an experiment that hasn't failed yet. <laughs> it's very true. I think, and there is a lot of truth to it, I, I think that the, the, the pendulum now is turning back from the uh, capitalism haziri, the piggish capitalism, I don't know how you call it. That's a definition. Okay. <laughs> That's a... Toward more, I would say, anything between attentive capitalism or, or uh, you know, the social networks and so on, sharing things. You go, you go to a big uh, uh, residential building in, in New York and you see that they have a few zip cars in the basement that they are sharing. We are having it all the time. That's the only way that we can drive cars on the kibbutz. So I, I think that the idea of living together and sharing things and being responsible... Uh, for one another, it's it's a beautiful idea. I can say one thing, you know, I, I really think that the idea of the kibbutz is paradise. We were looking for angels. We couldn't find them. Only human beings. So we have human beings on the kibbutz, and I think that for some of us, the kibbutz is moving east, us a little bit toward being an angel. But most of the people are no angels. It's amazing how I, I do these interviews a lot. And the issue of money, of, you know, I want to be rich. I want to be, you know, that's never the motivation in Israel. The motivation here that I've seen so far is I want to make the world a better place. I want to make an impact. I want to improve the lives of people who are less fortunate, who don't have the resources or the capabilities that we have and export that around the world. And there's no greater message of Zionism than Israel can help any country in the world with their problems if you just let us. It's Zionism comes from one side and it's Tikkun Olam coming from the other side. And for me, again, with all modesty, I feel that I made an impact in California, in the Arava, in Gaza. You have. Nati Barak, thank you very much. Uh, currently, you serve on the board of directors, the management committee, and economic committee at Kibbutz Chatzirim. No, not anymore. Dave. Not anymore. No, not anymore. I, I did it in the past. Today, I'm only member of one or two or three committees. You still live there? I still live. I'm a member of Kibbutz Chatzirim, and you are invited to visit me. I would invite you I'm on gonna, the Shabbat. You, I, I I'm going to take you up on it. I'm going to take you up on it. Let's do it. No, you, I would you, love that. 
uh, and, and I'd love to have you. And I know you will not come on Shabbat, but we'll find a day. I would love to come visit you and um, to, to see it um, firsthand. But, uh, but thank you very much for your time. This, is, this, has been, this has been really great. Just for the listeners, uh, in 2017, Mexichem acquired 80% of Netafim for $1.5 billion. Uh, the kibbutz continues to own 20% of it. That must make you guys a very, very rich kibbutz. You know, we are the richest kibbutz in the world. And there are three, there are three reasons for that. Yeah. The first one is that there are no kibbutzim in the world. <laughs> I was about to say. <laughs> the second one is that many of the kibbutzim in Israel are not in a very good shape today. And the third one is that Hatserim is a good kibbutz. Good people, good kibbutz. How many people are in the kibbutz now? Uh, close to 500 members, total population close to 1,000. Nati Barak, thank you very, very much for your time today. I really appreciate it. This is, this is, this is fascinating. And I'm going to take you up in that offer. I'm coming down to that kibbutz okay. with my kids. <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to Startup Stories from the Startup Nation. I'm the host, Yigal Marcus. The associate producers are Moshe Raps and Avi Maklis, and the senior research analyst is Lior Levin. If you have a startup that you think we should feature on air, please email me at yigal.marcus at bernstein.com or at startupstoriesisrael at gmail.com. No good startup in Israel is too big or too small. A big, very special thank you to my employer, Alliance Bernstein Investment Management and Research, who has been incredibly supportive of this initiative. And please share these podcasts with your friends, like us on Facebook, and please, please, please rate us on iTunes. Until next time, thank you for listening.